Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks. This is a Reconstructionist radio production with lrnteach.com. Please visit kuiper.org forward slash books to download or purchase this book. Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks, 2010, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England, narrated by Nathan Conkey. Chapter 2. Cleaning Up Secular Humanism Most Christians in Britain realise that things are desperately wrong in our culture, but there is not the same unanimity about what should be done about this, or indeed, if anything should be done at all. I used to know someone who refused to pray for peace in the world because his eschatology informed him that this is not to be expected in the end times, which he believed we were in then, although this was 25 years ago, and he believed that to pray for peace in the world would be, therefore, to pray against God's will, despite the fact that Christ said, quote, Blessed are the peacemakers, end quote, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Where Christians are convinced something should be done, the usual response is to support Christian lobbying groups. The aim of these groups is to change the law or stop new laws being passed in the hope of preserving what Christians consider to be the Christian character of our society or some element of it. Thousands of pounds are spent each year trying to stop Christian laws being abolished or non-Christian laws passed, yet the success of these activities is limited. Even when there is success, it is often often short-lived, and a few years down the road, the whole battle has to be fought again, and eventually, the cause is lost. This is because the underlying culture will not support what Christians want. The wind is blowing in the wrong direction. The fact is, the wind needs to change before lobbying groups can have any lasting success. But... There is an underlying problem with such activism that is seldom recognised, and it is this, that Christians are often really very much in sympathy with the prevailing direction of the wind. In any case, it is just the odd bits of damage that the wind does, the nasty little squalls that they do not like. The result is that Christian activism in Britain often amounts to no more than cleaning up secular humanism. The reason for this is that Despite the desire to do something about the moral deterioration of society, which in itself is, of course, laudable, Christians often do not have a thought-out biblical worldview to guide their activism. And when confronted by such a worldview, the response of Christians is often one of horror. A Christian agenda for activism based on a Christian worldview often fares no better among Christians than it does among non-believers. The Christian activist agenda in Britain is, on the whole, quite humanistic in its perspective. This is demonstrated by the fact that projects aimed at changing the culture and doing something with long-term results are usually met with opposition among Christians. Doubtless, this can be explained by the fact that such projects require work and commitment from Christians in their lives, whereas supporting lobbying groups amounts to no more than a financial sacrifice sending money to help someone else coerce politicians into fulfilling our responsibilities for us 
by passing and enforcing laws. This is not only a bad strategy for Christians to pursue, it is also an evasion of responsibility of the Christian's calling to work out his faith. For example, Christian homeschooling is on the whole abominated in Britain by most clergymen and Christians, if it is thought about at all, though in recent years the number of homeschooling families has begun to grow. Changing the worldview that underpins our culture, secular humanism, is not on the Christian agenda. Saved souls are on the agenda, in the sense of brands snatched from the fire. If the money that has been spent uselessly on trying to reform secular humanist state education in the UK or trying to get laws passed that will halt the decline in the state education system had been spent on Christian schools and promoting Christian homeschooling, it would, I believe, have had a significantly more positive and long-term effect in the lives of people that would issue in worldview changes in the next generation. And it is such changes of worldview that are required and produce lasting cultural transformation, not stopping bad laws from being enacted or saving a good law from being abolished. But this requires promoting an unpopular message, namely that Christians should face up to their responsibilities as parents rather than abdicate everything to the state. And that message is taboo. Trying to to get Christians to see this, to understand the pivotal role played by one's worldview and the fact and the fact that if we do not have a Christian worldview, we will have a non-Christian worldview, is very difficult in itself. This is because developing a Christian worldview requires thinking, and many Christians do not like thinking about their faith. It is deemed a fleshly or worldly activity. Instead, they feel things. And too much thinking seems to get in the way of their spiritual feelings. Trying to get Christians to realise that the education of their children must take place in terms of such a consistently thought-out Christian worldview is even more difficult. The result is not simply that Christians unwittingly imbibe a non-Christian worldview, that is, a non-Christian perspective in terms of which to assess all issues regarded as secular in nature. This unwitting compromise with secular humanism is passed on to the next generation the problem becomes compounded. When faced with the deterioration of society, instead of seeking to reverse the effects of this compromise, Christians respond by spending a great deal of time and money trying to clean up secular humanism. The problem is really that Christians on the whole have bought into secular humanism, though they may not realise this. They think they have a Christian perspective if they want to stop pornography and gay rights but seldom realise that protesting about these sorts of issues on its own will achieve very little, unless our whole agenda is anchored in a Christian worldview, and that, without such a worldview affecting the whole of our lives, campaigning on these issues will simply amount to cleaning up secular humanism. They will continue to send their children to state schools to be educated in terms of a secular humanist worldview that propagates very cultural ideas they think they are against but in fact unwittingly support. It is a gargantuan task to re-educate Christians about this. They are simply not interested in thinking about it, not interested in thinking much at all. And yet, unless our minds are changed, 
which is what repentance means, our lives will remain the same. Difficult? Well, yes, but we have to try nonetheless. And so it is that the work of many Christian lobbying groups, even though their aims are usually laudable aims, amounts so often to no more than an attempt to clean up secular humanism. But this, in the event, is counterproductive because cleaning up secular humanism simply makes it more attractive to society, both to non-Christians and Christians alike, with the result that real cultural change in terms of the demands of the Christian faith is hindered at best or even abandoned in favour of a respectable secular humanism. But secular humanism, even in respectable dress, cannot save our nation from the moral, cultural and political deterioration that we are now experiencing. Only Christianity can do that. Cleaning up secular humanism will not change our culture. It will certainly not Christianize it any more than dressing up a pig in a three-piece suit will enable it to behave with exquisite manners at the vicar's tea party. We need to replace the secular humanist culture that dominates our society with a Christian culture, not dress up secular humanism as Christianity. I would rather secular humanism wore its dirty ideals on its sleeves than have naive Christians dress it up to look like something it is not. The result of such dressing up is more damaging to our society than leaving it alone so that people can see it for what it really is. Why? Because after the beast has been scrubbed and cleaned and dressed up in fancy clothes, it remains a beast and will continue behaving like a beast, even though it may look more presentable. In other words, it will continue to affect our culture according to its real nature, but it will be able to do its work subliminally for most people who will be unaware of the consequences of its effects on society because of its superficial appearance of respectability. This seems to be particularly true for many Christians who often fail to recognise the significance of the deeper issues. For example, Christian lobbying organisations will work for Christian religious education in schools or for religious education to be mainly Christian and for controls on sex education, etc. These goals are laudable in themselves, but the question of whether state education is a valid Christian ideal is not explored. The issue here is too difficult. Those who front lobbying groups do not wish to be perceived as extremists. They wish to appear reasonable in terms of secular humanistic criteria. They only want things from the government that any reasonable person would want. They agree that the state should continue to tax people in order to provide state-funded and state-controlled education. They want only that RE lessons should be mainly Christian and that sex education should reflect our religious heritage, etc. But what about the English lesson, the maths lesson, the science lesson, the geography lesson, the history lesson, the assembly? And Christians should not think that because the law requires a Christian assembly, that children will get a Christian assembly, or that because a teacher claims the assembly is Christian, therefore the assembly will be Christian. The influence of the secular humanist worldview in these areas of study is far greater than its influence in the RE lesson, precisely because it is less obvious.
and, in fact, more authoritative for most people, including most Christians? Suppose we get schools with Christian RE lessons and no sex education. What then? Do we have a Christian school? Of course not. What if we have a school with Christian RE lessons, no sex education and all Christian teachers? Do we then have a Christian school? Not necessarily. It depends not only on what teachers are teaching, but how they are teaching it. If the government, which claims to be religiously neutral, is in control, the ability of teachers to provide a Christian education is severely limited, even if they understand the issues and wish to provide such an education, and not all do. But the government is not religiously neutral, even though it claims to be, and even though most people think it is. It is humanistic. Secular humanism is a religion. The modern state is a secular humanist institution, and therefore a religious institution. Likewise for schools. Schools are never religiously neutral institutions, because facts never speak for themselves. They are always spoken about by human beings with a theory or several theories. These theories will either acknowledge God's creative will as that which gives meaning to the facts, or they will deny God and his creative will as having any relevance to the meaning of the facts. There is no neutral alternative, no third way to approach the facts. Facts are always interpreted facts. One's interpretation of the facts either acknowledges God as Lord, or it does not. We are either for Christ or against him. Either we think, that is, interpret the facts obediently, or we think disobediently. In teaching anything, therefore, a way of understanding is also inevitably conveyed to the pupil, even where this is not understood or recognised, either by pupil or teacher. Teaching anything always involves the imparting of a particular theory of knowledge, which will be either obedient to Christ or disobedient to Christ. Knowledge is not a neutral issue. It is not merely about facts. It is about how we understand and interpret facts. And this is always a religious question, because we understand the facts either obediently or disobediently. That is, we think either obediently, by recognising and, and acknowledging God as creator, and therefore as the one whose interpretation of the facts, his revealed world, is authoritative for the whole of life, or disobediently, that is, by assuming that the world exists and can be understood independently of the one who created it, continually sustains it, and whose creative purpose defines the meaning of all things. In teaching all subjects, the teacher teaches the pupil to think in one of these ways. That is, he either teaches his pupil to assume the God-created and God-interpreted nature of reality, or he teaches him to assume the autonomous rationality of the human mind, though of course, in both cases, this may not be done self-consciously. Indeed, these presuppositions usually operate quite subliminally in the teacher's worldview, and thus also in his teaching of any particular subject, including religious knowledge. Consequently, even Christian teachers who have not understood the epistemological issues, may well teach their subjects, unwittingly 
from a secular humanist perspective. In fact, this is often the case. And the constant obsession of Christian organisations and lobbying groups with the mere externals of the situation only exacerbates this problem. If only we had more Christian teachers, more Christian RE lessons, less sex education, better discipline, everything would be all right. But it would not. These things on their own will not get at the heart of the matter. They will not, on their own, or automatically, produce a Christian worldview. In fact, this is quite obvious from our current situation. There is perhaps no other profession where the presence of Christians is greater than that of the teaching profession. State education in Britain is positively awash with teachers who are Christians. Has this produced any real change of basic perspective in the education system? No. It may upset many to hear this, but if the answer were yes, would there be the frantic panic exhibited by Christian lobbying groups who constantly send out mailings encouraging Christians to write to their MP or various lords about Clause 28 and a host of other measures that overturn Christian virtues in the education system? Of course not. This does not mean that Christian teachers support the overthrow of Christian virtues in education. Of course not. Though sometimes this does happen. The deterioration continues relentlessly despite the fact that so many Christian teachers are against these deleterious measures. The mere presence of Christian teachers does not, has not and will not in itself change the policy. As already mentioned, the victories of lobbying groups are short-lived in this environment. Clause 28 is a good example, since the government remains opposed to it and the issue will come up again. But there are others. And even where there are legal victories, this does not mean that the practical teaching that goes on in schools will become Christian. Passing a law that states RE lessons should be mainly Christian will not produce Christian schools. For that, we should need Christian RE lessons to be taught from a Christian perspective, not a secular humanistic perspective. And we should need all lessons, including not only RE, but maths, English, history, science, etc., to be taught from a Christian perspective as well. And not only this, the whole ethos of the school would have to be Christian. Will passing laws achieve this? No. The Christian community's ability to affect areas such as education by lobbying activity is very limited and, in a culture that is as humanistic as ours now, is simply ineffective. But lobbying continues relentlessly and it costs huge sums of money. For what? Another legal defeat? Perhaps a victory at the first and second reading of some new bill, but eventually the third reading will put pay to all the efforts which will have then been a waste of money. And if there is a victory at the third reading, the whole venture will more than likely be repeated in a few years, if that, ending in another crushing defeat. Why? Because the cultural wind, so to speak, is so much against the success of such political fixes. Such measures on their own cannot change our culture. At best, they are measures aimed at a cleaning up of secular humanism. But it does not work. And the money that is spent on this could be spent more tactically and with a greater measure of success, that is, in a way that would produce long-term cultural reorientation 
in terms of the Christian faith. But the projects that would do this would require much more than money. They would require hard work and commitment from Christians themselves, rather than the effortless writing of a cheque to fund a lobbying group that tries to make the government pass a law requiring others to do for Christians what they should be doing for themselves. This is not to criticise the lobbying of government regarding legislation where it is valid, but this, on its own, cannot achieve the transformation of society from a non-Christian to a Christian culture. Such transformation requires Christians to put their own hands to the plough. The vast sums that have been spent by Christian organisations on lobbying government over education law could have been spent with far more lasting effect on the creation of Christian schools and the facilitation of Christian homeschooling through resources and curriculum development, support groups to help and encourage the practice of Christian education by parents and the like. But for this to happen, there would have to be commitment to this by Christians, by the churches and particularly by church leaders who are, after all, responsible for leading their congregations in the faith. What could have been achieved by this kind of thing by now could have had significant effects, not only in the education of the next generation of Christians, but in terms of the church's witness to the world. Instead, Christians seem, on the whole, so utterly committed to making sure their children get a good secular humanist education. Some even deny themselves sacrificially so that they can send their children to the very best of secular humanist schools, private ones, and no doubt feel very self-righteous about it. Would that they were prepared to make the same sacrifice to provide their children with a Christian education? What is happening here? This is a strategy guaranteed to produce defeat for the church. Is there any wonder the church is so powerless, has so little influence, is no longer listened to, is so irrelevant to the majority of people in our culture today. Indeed, the church is little more than an object of ridicule in our society, and while this continues, she deserves no better. To proclaim Christ as Lord and then send one's children to be educated as secular humanists is ridiculous. Is there any wonder that so many of the children of Christian parents eventually decide that Christianity is not for them? and abandon the faith when they grow up. Of course, this does not happen in every case, but that does not justify giving our children a secular humanist education, and it happens often enough to cause us to rethink this whole issue. The only way for Christians to change our culture successfully is for them to get involved in cultural activity. That means that we must engage the culture in which we live in terms of the cultural issues that determine the way we live, but in a way that brings the gospel to bear on those issues. If Christians want Christian education for their children, they must provide it, not expect the government to pass a law requiring someone else to provide it for them. What is Christian in the least about that? If Christians want society to behave in a Christian manner, they must get involved with creating the cultural conditions and means for that to happen. For example, they must establish Christian schools that will provide Christian education for non-believers also, many of whom would be willing to send their children to Christian schools for the sake of their education. 
this is not hypothetical. Such schools do exist, though there are far too few of them. Likewise, if Christians wish to see the homeless problem and unemployment dealt with, they must get involved with providing Christian services for those in need, based on Christian work ethics, rather than leaving it all to the state. Such an abdication of our responsibility to help the destitute does not, does not fulfil the divine command of Scripture. James chapter 2, verses 14-16 to 16. If Christians wish to see the arts and media transformed by the gospel, and this is a vital area since these spheres are so formative for the life of our whole culture, they must get involved with the arts and the media. If Christians wish to see the political life of the nation Christianized and raised to a better level, they must get involved with the political process, not in order that Christians might be relieved of their Christian responsibilities by the state, however, but that they might be enabled to shoulder their responsibilities. For example, taking the issue of education again. A Christian political perspective would not be geared to relieving parents of their God-given duties in the education of their children. For example, provision of state-funded and state-controlled schools. Not even state-funded Christian schools, but rather tax reform that would empower parents financially to provide for their children's education themselves. These are just a few of the areas that face us as Christians and demand that we engage with them as ambassadors of the gospel of God. Our remit in bringing the gospel to bear on life is as wide as life itself. No area of our calling, individually or jointly as a society, is excused from this calling to bring all things into subjection to Jesus Christ. This will require the development of a Christian worldview. Without this, our ability to think and act consistently as Christians in the cultural melting pot will be severely inhibited. God will still save individuals. God will always save his elect. But we are commanded not merely to snatch brands from the fire. We are commanded to disciple the nation to Christ. The whole nation. Matthew chapter 28 verse 19. This cannot be achieved by means of lobbying activities. This is not meant to deny that such activities have a legitimate role. But such a role exists in a limited sphere, quite simply because politics is only one part of life and we are never to look at it as an idol that is, as that which provides meaning and guidance for the whole of life. Only Christ provides such meaning in our world. Lobbying groups cannot take the place of Christian activism. And by activism, I do not mean political protest, which is what it has often now come to mean for many. Rather, I mean hands-on cultural engagement with the world that Christ came to redeem. This is our calling, both as human beings created in the image of God, Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, and as redeemed sinners who serve Christ in the power of a spirit. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Christians must decide whether they want a Christian culture or whether they merely wish to clean up secular humanism. The way we answer this question, consciously or unconsciously, will produce very different results because it will determine how we seek to affect our culture, how we seek to be active in society as Christians, and therefore it will determine the consequences of those actions. Our calling 
is to disciple the nation to Christ, to create a Christian culture, a Christian society and nation, not to clean up secular humanism. Our strategy must be geared to this. Therefore, we must start thinking, and thinking not as a ghetto waiting for the end, but as an army poised to transform our culture for Christ. Quote, for as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. End quote. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.